Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much as we come today that we've had an opportunity to worship you, God. You are worthy of so much. The worship in heaven is, is unending. And I pray, God, that you would so work in our hearts that the worship would be the same. That, Father, whether we're at church on Sunday or whether we're out during the week, that all that we do would bring glory and honor and praise to your name. But I pray this morning now as we take time, as we open your word, that you might open it to us to understand, God, to see who you are and who we are. And Father, I pray that you would uh, take the words that are in your word and that you would apply them to our hearts. And God, I pray this not just to make our lives better. That's not what we're looking for. But God, that your name might be glorified, that we would love you more, that we would have faith, that our faith in you would grow stronger, Lord, that you would be honored. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. You know, in, in, in everyone's life, there are certain defining moments, sort of crossroads, if you would, in our lives uh, in which decisions are made that affects our life. For, sometimes for the rest of our lives you know and on the one hand these might be decisions that that we have made and that we carry out and they have such an impact on us but other times they may be circumstances that happen in our lives that may direct us down a certain path that we didn't plan to go down I mean think for example uh, maybe uh, a wife whose husband dies and she's not only left a widow, but maybe with um, many little children or something. And she has to, to deal with that. And, or maybe it's an accident that occurs. I think of a Johnny of Johnny and Friends and how she was 17 and had this diving accident and how that has affected her life. Uh, she would say in a very good and a very positive way. Uh, but, or maybe it's a disease or something like that. But the reality is... That no matter whether it is decisions that we are making, choices that we're making, or the ones that we feel like are sort of being made for us, uh, we all are on a journey through life. And that road that's heading towards some destination. And I think it's good for us this morning, as we think about that, to think about our lives and think, where is it that we're going? Is our life one that is uh, a path that is going to draw us closer to God? Or is it one that's going to lead us in the other direction? Well, as we come to the first chapter of the book of Ruth, it is a story of choices that are made and choices seemingly thrust upon people. And it's about long-term consequences, uh, but oftentimes the consequences are not what are expected or even anticipated. And that's very true for Elimelech and for his family. But I also want us to understand that our lives are not simply the consequences of the various decisions that we make or even the events that have occurred in our life. I mean, it's not like the universe is some supercomputer and, you know, whatever you put into the computer is going to come out. You know, you've heard the same, at least they used to say this when computers first came out, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put in the computer, that's what's going to come out. But that's not true necessarily of our lives because, as one person put it so well, there is a mysterious X factor that is evident in the book of Ruth a variable that has the power to change everything and that is the grace of our God 
Amen? That God directs the outcomes of the decisions and the events according to His sovereignty and the good purpose that He has for His people. And it's that grace that is always evident. Now, we may not feel like it's always evident in the midst of the circumstances in which we encounter. And I would suggest to you that that's true here for Elimelech and his family. I think it's interesting that as you read through the book of Ruth, and I hope you'll do that this week, that you'll notice in every sort of snapshot or every scene in the book of Ruth, God is mentioned except in these first five or six verses. There's really no mention of God in that whatsoever. But for the Christian, we need to understand whether it's acknowledged or unacknowledged that the grace of God is always the defining element in our lives. Amen? And we give praise to God for that. But as we look at this story this morning of Ruth, I want us to see a couple of things. And the first thing I want us to notice is that sin often ensnares us one step at a time. That sin often ensnares us one step at a time. You know, the story of Elimelech in many ways is a tragedy, if you look at it. But, but more than that, it's a warning to us of the subtle steps by which sin can ensnare us. And we see that in Elimelech's life and that of his household as well. And, and look, if you would, at the description that's uh, given here in the first verse of Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, okay, now that's not just a time stamp, so you know historically when this took place. I mean, it does tell us that, but there's actually a theological description that's being given here too as well. And if you're a student of Scripture, you know that the, the book of Judges and that time period in Israel's history was sort of their dark period. You know, it was a, a period that was described in Judges 21-25 as there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, everybody did what was best in their own eyes and of their own opinions. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? You know, who functions as if there's no absolute truth and no absolute standard and everyone lives the way that they want, right? And who are you to judge me, right? We hear that all the time. Well, that's a lot like it was in the book of Judges. As a matter of fact, that whole phrase of there was no king and everybody did what was right in his own eyes is repeated over and over and over in that book, just in case we didn't catch it the first time. And what we see in the book of Judges is sort of a re repeated cycle. Um, some people refer to really more of a downward spiral that took place in the book of Judges. But at the beginning of, of each cycle, we see God's people rebelling against him and sinning. And so God acts in judgment against his people. And so then they then repent and cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And so what does the Lord do? He graciously sends them a deliverer. And, and you see this cycle throughout. But the reason why I say it's sort of a downward spiral is because as, the book, as you go through the book farther and farther, you see the people probably being less and less repentant. And even the judges themselves, you see, is sort of going from more stellar to not so stellar. I mean, you think about the first judge, uh, Othniel, he is an upstanding judge. But then you have the last judge in the book of Judges, who is who? Kids, do you know? It's Samson, okay? And you're, you, you think of Samson as a deliverer for God's people, and he, has, he lacks a lot, you know? He's, he's a man who chases after foreign uh, women. 
He, he's a man of drink, even though he had taken a Nazarite vow um, to be set aside for the Lord. He broke all of those things. And so he wasn't much of a godly man. And then the final chapters of the book of Judges, chapter 17 through 21, we see some very dark things. And I'm not going to describe it because, one, I think for the kids it could be rather graphic. But it is really, really sort of frightening to see the kind of things that went on in the nation of Israel at that time. But it shows us that it's a nation that had lost its way. That it was becoming every bit as bad as the pagan nations who were in the land before God sent his people to come in and to clear out the land. And so God sent his judgment upon Israel uh, and upon the land as he had promised Moses that he would do in Deuteronomy 28. Now, in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68, you sort of see um, the curses that God said he would bring upon the people and upon the land if they did not follow him. And so you can take the time to read that this afternoon. But that's where we see Elimelech right now. Israel had sinned against the Lord. There was now a famine in the land because God's people had sinned. And the, the Lord had brought that uh, to draw their hearts back to him. Well, Elimelech had to decide what he was going to do in this time. And, uh, you know, he, he had the choice that he could either stay in Israel, which I think it's interesting. If you look at verse 2, it says that he was from Bethlehem and Judah, okay? Well, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. But what would have struck the Jew is that here is this man who is from the city of the house of bread, but it was a place of no food because of the sin of God's people. And so he had a choice. He could stay in Bethlehem, the empty bread basket of Judah, mourning the sin that surrounded him and trusting God to provide for him. Or he could leave the promised land behind and he could go 50 miles away to Moab and he could settle there. And so that's what he does. You know, he, he decides to go to Moab. Now, in one sense, you look at this and you got to say, I don't blame the guy. He has to feed his family. Uh, at least that's what it looks like. And, and it says in verse 1 that he sojourned in Moab, which meant he just went there temporarily. He didn't go there to set up permanent residency. He just went there for a little while. And so, you know, you look at that and it makes sense in one way. But really, his choice was not that clear cut. You see, God had delivered his people from Egypt and brought them to the land of Canaan as a special place for them to live. And God had called Elimelech to live in Bethlehem. He therefore, Elimelech had no business, therefore, to leave the promised land that God had given. And to go to Moab would have even been insult into injury because, as you might remember from our scripture reading back in Genesis 19, uh, where Moab comes from is an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. And then not only that, but when the Israelites came out of Egypt, it was king of Moab that hired a prophet to come call down curses upon the Israelites. And as if that's not enough, then the women of Moab were stumbling block to the men of the Israelites to draw them away to false gods. And then in Judges 3, we see that Moab uh, oppressed the Israelites. Uh, so, you know, this is not a God-friendly nation. This is a very pagan nation. And so for Elimelech to move to Moab was to turn his back on God and upon his will. 
brothers and sisters, I want us to hear this. How easy it is for us to rationalize our decisions to do what we think is best, especially if decisions require us to trust God when everything within us tells us otherwise. Amen? It's no wonder that the scriptures say, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But how easy is it rather than trusting in God and him making our path straight for us to trust in, in our own ways, in our own understanding? And I think the other thing that's interesting is, is if you look at Elimelech's name, it literally means my God is king. It appears, however, that God was no more king to Elimelech's heart than was that of his fellow countrymen. Uh, there was no king in Elimelech's life, I think, other than him just doing what was right in his own eyes. You know, but how often do we do the same thing? We are confronted with a decision and we don't pray about it or we don't even really consider it in light of what Scripture says. We don't seek godly counselors who are steeped in the Word of God to help us. Instead, we simply make a decision. Why? Because, guys, it's a no-brainer, right? I, I know I ought to do this. I know I ought to take the promotion or whatever the, the decision might make. But, you know, that's not always the, the right decision. Very often in those defining moments in life where we get to direct our own course for the future, the factors that weigh the most heavily in our decisions are those that seem most likely to provide us with comfort and security, right? Don't we always seem to gravitate towards that which gives us comfort and security, that which gives us pleasure? Uh, I, I hate to say this, but even for Christians, oftentimes it is not the will of God that directs our lives, but it's those other things instead. And I think it's interesting, just like Elimelech, whose name meant, my God is king, for us, we are called Christian, which means like Christ, like Christ. And yet, how often do we act as the sovereign of our own lives, making the choices that always seem to be best in our eyes. And so, you know, it's so easy for us to, to maybe think, you know, I'll take that job. It'll only be for a couple of years. You know, I, I understand there's no real good Bible-believing Reformed Church close by, but, you know, it's just a couple of years. What is that going to hurt? Or, you know, uh, that's, you know I, I know I, I need a little bit of wine here and there to, to get me to go to sleep and you know, I, I know this has been my fourth glass of wine on Saturday night, but you know, uh, you know, Sunday's coming, and uh, as long as I get up and get to church, it's okay. It doesn't matter if I get a little soused. I don't know if you get soused on four wines. I don't drink, but anyway, whatever the example might be, you know, or or maybe we're worn out because we're not only trying to control our lives, but we're trying to meet the needs of everybody around us. And so we're trying to help all these people and we're just exhausted and we're not even inquiring to the Lord's. You know, brothers and sisters, beware of the subtle steps by which sin ensnares us. Elimelech's good intentions, you know, or Elimelech, excuse me, I'm sure had good intentions for his family. Uh, we, I, we don't know his motives for certain, but I would guess that that was the case. But good intentions or not, they were no protection against sin's sly tactics, were they? 
Uh, you, you know, he might have meant well, it, and it might have looked wise in the eyes of the Lord. But whenever we seek to make decisions apart from inquiring in God's word, we almost oftentimes make poor decisions. And not only that, but we can oftentimes justify our actions by saying, well, I, I have to do this. I have to do this. If I don't, then, and you fill in the blank, you know, it's going to happen. And so the road to Moab turned out to be the road that leads to nowhere. That reality was not obviously immediately apparent to Limelech and his family, and it rarely is, but that was the case. But the second thing I want us to see is, is that not only does sin ensnare us sort of subtly, slowly, one step at a time, but also God often leads by hard providence or hard circumstances. You know, the, the downward spile for Elimelech's family reaches rock bottom as you look at verse 5. And what you end up with is three widows. Elimelech goes to Moab. He dies. His sons take on Moabite wives, which they were not supposed to do, you know, by God's word. But they did. They lived there another ten years. So it's not like Naomi was innocent. She could have come back. To Bethlehem. It wasn't like her husband was making her do that, but she found security and, and stuff there in that land, and so she stayed. Uh, but now, here they are, these husbands, all the men have died, and, and widows in that day and time didn't have the government to take care of them. They didn't have social security or anybody around, and so they were just sort of destitute and alone in Moab. It's a, it's a heart-rendering scene of utter misery and loss, but it's this very catastrophe that really sets up the rest of the story as well. Because it is out of this that we see that, that Ruth is introduced into the family and then where God then works out his purpose as such that she becomes the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ and that messianic line is established uh, through her. And so we see through that the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy for us to stand here because we know the end of the book of Ruth. If I could only show you the first five verses, I would, and not tell you the rest of the story. But now, because we know the rest of the story, that we just want to quote Romans 8:28, right? All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. But is that what we really believe? What about when we're in the midst of the difficulties you know, especially when we're in the midst of those hard times. Do we believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called, in, uh, call, called according to his purpose? Do you believe that God works even Elimelech's sin together for the good? Do you believe that he works the tragic deaths of this father and husband and of his sons do you believe that even the destitution of Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, all of that works together for good? Does God work the darkest, sorest, ugliest, and most shameful, most painful trials together for good? What are you going through right now? What are the struggles that you have? Do you trust that God is working all those things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose? That's the hard and hopeful message of Romans 8.28 and Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I think typically we think 
the knowledge that God is at work in our lives is a very comforting thing. But sometimes God's work in our lives is very hard. And sometimes that comes because of the hardness of our heart or the struggle that we have. And sometimes, like Israel, we can live in sin and we can even enjoy that sin. But if God has set his heart upon us, he loves us enough, he will not let us abide there or stay there, but he will pursue us. And we need to know that those who truly repent and turn to him, there is forgiveness of sins. Look at uh, verse 6. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, the idea here is, is that God's people had repented of their sins and that there is now, once again, bread in the land. So God's judgment on sin is very certain. Okay, don't, don't, don't hear me otherwise because his word is faithful. But even more consistent is God's desire to restore wandering sinners to himself. Grace is always God's last word. Now, I want to say something, though, because I think we live in a culture of license. You know, I can just, I can, I can abide in sin and I can do whatever I want and it's okay. God will forgive me. So I can do whatever I want. So I think it is worth saying that not everyone who abandons the way of the Lord will return. Okay, I, I look at the Israelites in the Old Testament and I see over and over those who rebelled against God and who God brought them to death and even their entire families. God still accomplished his purpose for Israel just like he still does for the church today. But it doesn't mean that every single person will return to the Lord. Some who once seemed to be a part of God's people prove that they never really were part of His. And as they abandon the path to life and fall away, as we see in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. And that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the way to life in all its fullness. But I want us to understand that God in His grace... And I want you to hear this. God in His grace transcends our rebellion and not only leaves the door open for us to retrace our steps like Naomi is in coming back to Israel, but He stirs our hearts to see our folly and the welcoming arms that await our return. And that's the difference between someone who does not know the Lord and someone who does know the Lord. That when God works in the heart of his children, they will see their folly and their sin and they will repent and they will turn to him. But one who is not his will just become more hardened in their sin. So I want you to see that here there is hope for us. Even for those who have chosen the way of rebellion and persisted even for a long time in the way of rebellion, there's still a way home. In the grace of God, the road to nowhere may yet turn out to be the first leg of that long journey home. So don't give up hope. So as we look at the book of Ruth, we want us to see that it addresses people who, like us, are like Elimelech and Naomi. Like them, we often find that the grass seems greener on the other side, that temptation is there. And often we exhibit a fundamental lack of trust in God's goodness. Maybe we complain about the job that the Lord has given us or the spouse that we're married to or the family or even the lack of family. Maybe we want to be married and God hasn't brought that 
about. And so we fantasize of the grass, how the grass is greener on the other side. And maybe you're even here this morning and you have to confess that you've even turned your back on the ways of the Lord. That what you look like right now here on Sunday morning is a very different person than you are during the week. That your family sees a different person. Maybe you're here and you're bound and you're struggling in pornography and, and you're, you're finding yourself and your desires fulfilled, not in the Lord, but in other ways. But God's grace not only brings in those who were always outside to his people, like Ruth, but he also extends to those who have rebelled against him from the inside and pursued forbidden paths like Naomi. And you may be a Naomi this morning. So no matter what we have done and how long we have done it, there is forgiveness and hope if we will just turn our hearts to the Lord. Indeed, the very fact that you're hearing this message and willing to receive it shows that most likely the Lord is working in your heart. So the reason for our hope is God's faithfulness to his people. God is committed to saving a people for himself. He does this not by searching for some perfect people. That's not what we're talking about here. But he comes down and he transforms sinners, hear this, from the inside out. He works to give us new hearts, new, makes us new creatures in Christ. And all along the road to heaven, he works in us. Now, this work is a slow work. God is in no hurry. And so if you're struggling with sin and you go, well, I feel like I'm taking two steps forward and one step back. You know, sometimes that's just the path that the Lord takes us down to draw us ever closer to Him. You know, the father of the prodigal son didn't sit in his living room waiting for his son to come. I mean, as we read that story, I think it's interesting that the father saw his son coming from afar. And what did the father do? He ran to go and to meet his son. So, too, God has not left us to make the journey home alone. In Christ, God comes running to meet us. Where Elimelech left the place of famine to seek false blessing in Moab, Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to bring us a true blessing on earth. Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves into exile from the land of promise, trying to build their own kingdom. But Jesus, though, went into exile from his Father's presence so that he might rescue us from our own kingdom building and grant us a true and a living future in his kingdom. So the God who empties us and, and strips away those precious things in which we are trusting, uh, he knows what it is to be stripped of all his possessions, left alone and abandoned by his friends and even hung on a cross. So every tear of loss that God inflicts on us is a tear whose cost he himself understands. He is a God who has suffered for us. So the pain of God's correcting work is therefore never harsh. It's never more than is absolutely necessary to turn our hearts to him. And God will go to whatever lengths. And so if you're here today and you are finding the duplicity in your heart and you are running from him, know that God never gives up, that God will keep us faithful to the end. But that doesn't mean that we can just continue to pursue our sin. We must repent and we must turn to him. 
It is measured and designed to show us the emptiness of the paths that we have chosen for ourselves that we must return to Him. What is more is when we do return to Him, we discover that it is His delight to be filled, to, to fill the void that, that we have created. The Father delights to clothe the naked prodigal, exalts to honor the humiliated prodigal. He thrives to clothe us once again and restore us to that place of being a son. He takes the proud and brings them low. But once we have recognized our inner poverty, he delights to exalt us and seat us with princess. What an awesome God we serve. Amen. How great is his mercy and grace. He is a God that will never let us go. Let's bow our heads as we reflect upon the word preached this morning. God, I, I think it's just amazing to see the way that you work in our hearts and our lives. And to think that last week, the message from the end of James was that we are to, to restore uh, those who have, are wandering from the faith. That we are to, to, to seek after them and pursue them. And then to be reminded this morning that you are the God that pursues us as well. And that, that just shows us the great love that you have set upon us. Oh God, we don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. We probably can relate a lot more to the Israelites at the end of the book of Judges than we really hope to admit. But Lord, I pray that you would so work on our hearts to draw us to you. And I pray, Lord, especially for anyone here today that may be really rustling. Uh, someone, Lord, maybe who is thinking, oh, I'm just so thankful that nobody else in this room knows the things I've done or the things I've said or the things I've been thinking in my mind. Lord, I pray that you would pour your grace out upon them. Pour your grace out upon all of us. Because, Lord, apart from your work in our hearts, we are all Elimelechs. We are all Naomi's. But I pray that we might walk as your children to give glory and praise and honor to your name. Oh, Lord, make us, make our profession and our lives uh, be one. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.